Thank you all again for being here. Take your Bibles, if you will. You're a copy of the Word of God. And go to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. We've began our, our walk through, if you will, our immersion in the book of Matthew. And as long as we're immersed there scripturally, we're going to uh, preach through the book of Matthew, however long it takes. Uh, we've already been in, in Matthew 1 in Christmas time, Matthew 2 last week, and uh, we will be in Matthew 3. Now, if you're thinking, maybe, that will be one sermon per chapter, it's probably not going to be that way. There will probably be a few more within each chapter. In fact, there's even more in chapter 3 that we won't touch on today. But they're in Matthew chapter 3. Let's, um, I've named this title of the message this morning, A Voice in the Wilderness. Uh, you can see that um, John here, we'll read here in a moment, is that voice that's prophesied in the wilderness. And it is good to see, or to read rather, his words. So take, you got your Bible there. Please, please stand in honor of the, of the reading of the Word of God. And uh, let's, um, let's read through the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 3. The Bible says, God inspiring the, the, the writer Matthew here, he wrote, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits, Meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now, and know also the axe is, and now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth uh, not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Lastly, verse 12 says, whose fan, speaking of Christ, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's go to our, our Savior in prayer one, one more time this morning. Heavenly Father, we love you again. We thank you for the opportunity again to be in your house. We thank you for the opportunity. I personally thank you for allowing me to be in the ministry. Allow me to preach this message this morning, Lord. Lord, use me. Lord, get a hold of my heart. Get a hold of the hearts that are here, Lord, and just meet with us in a very special way. So much, so special that when we leave here, Lord, we know without a doubt that we've met with you this morning. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the cross. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you do for us. And in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please, please be seated. As we, again, continue um, in our walk through the gospel according to Matthew, and as we move further into the new year, uh, I think it's an important for us. We haven't really looked too deep into the purpose of Matthew's gospel, so I think it's important for us to revisit that purpose here short, uh, briefly. So the gospel according to Matthew is, of course, the first of three synoptic gospels, uh, the synoptic being similar, uh, the others being the gospel according to Mark and the gospel according 
to Luke. Matthew's gospel is unique in its placement being the first book in the New Testament, the first of the gospel. Um, and contrary to some, some theologians, they believe that maybe uh, Mark was a source and all those things there. Matthew was the first one that was written. That's why we look at the history. And as they traveled around, it was the first one that was traveled around, mostly, number one, because it was the first one written. But also because the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, is the perfect link, the perfect bridge, if you will, from the Old Testament, which ended in the Jewish Testament in Second Chronicles, mind you, and the, the, the best link to that of the... So a good link between the Old Testament of Judaism with the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Matthew wrote to the Jews about some things, that the next fulfillment of, of prophecy. It's also important for us to have some insight, if you will, on where Judaism was, where, what the general consensus was in Jerusalem and, and in those who were Jewish. Um, and some say, speaking of the religion, that it was already a dead religion as in God's presence had long left the tabernacle. And there is certainly some truth to that statement, but a general consensus um, will show, a general study of the New Testament will show that the Jews were looking for their king. They were looking for somebody to initiate the kingdom. That's clear throughout all the Gospels, even when they tried to make Christ king, and he slipped away until it was his time to go to the cross. I want to say for the record, he was already their king, um, but the crown that he came to receive must come after the cross. No crown, no cross, no crown. So Matthew here begins his gospel with Christ's genealogy, Jesus' genealogy, noting first, you see right there, if you go back to verse number 1 of chapter 1, notice, noting first that he was the son of David. Jesus is the offspring of David. We know also that he's the root of David. But he continues in verse 23 of that chapter by quoting Isaiah's prophecy, in, in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, I know this is not Christmas, but I want to point out that Matthew presents Jesus as the son of David and the son of God right there in the very first chapter of Matthew. And then later on, he clearly quotes, uh, quotes Zechariah chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 21, 5 says, Behold, thy king cometh. Son of God, Son of Man, King. Thy King cometh unto thee, meek, sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. In other words, Jesus was indeed sent to be the King of Israel. That was the opening purpose. That's Matthew's argument from the very first chapter, and it truly permeates his entire gospel. Jesus, Son of David, Son of God, King of the Jews. And to further cement that foundation, Matthew continues here in chapter 3 with a man who would be a forerunner, who is the forerunner to the coming king, who again is the Lord Jesus Christ. We, of course, know this forerunner as John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, he himself, is the fulfillment of a handful of prophecies found, one of which is found in Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, or as Matthew put it, make his paths straight. This was the calling of John the Baptist. The king was coming for his people. Get them ready. The king was coming for his people. Get the people ready. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, the angel told John's father, Zacharias, that his son would be used to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
in verses 60 or 76 and 77 of Luke chapter 1, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Zacharias tells John the Baptist that he will be called a prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. This is the task that John the Baptist has. And while his purpose was to prepare Israel to receive their king, you might be thinking, what's this got to do with us? <laughs> Quite a bit. There is much to glean, actually, from John's words that prepare us to receive our king. But in an effort to stay true to the text, let's put ourselves as much as possible in that time period. Let's, let's stand in our mind's eye next to the Jordan River. We're there with John. We're hearing John. Maybe we've come to be baptized, but let's put our mind there. Maybe even think we're a Jew for a moment and try to understand the impact of John's words there on that riverbank. So for roughly 400 years, there has not been a prophet from the Lord. Malachi was the last prophet. There's not been a prophet. No, no Elijah, no Enoch, no Isaiah, no nobody. And the studious Jews... Those who were looking into the Scriptures, they were looking for Elijah. They were looking for their king. The last, very last prophecy from the Lord is found in the last two verses or so from in the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, God speaking, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The Lord's coming. They're looking for the Lord, but they know Elijah has to come. So they're thinking that. And then, lo and behold, there's this John the Baptist. He comes on the scene. He's preaching boldly like Elijah. He even eats and dresses like Elijah does. And after all these years, I mean, think about that. If you're, you're there on that riverside, I mean, think of if you could have lived 400 years, right, through all of those silent years, and you're there, you're an old man or old woman, and you're waiting for John the Baptist, this prophet of God, to break the silence of 400 years. What is he going to say? I wonder for a nation who was looking for Elijah, that positive, that king to come um, bring and initiate their kingdom, what would their reaction be? What would your reaction be when the prophetic silence was broken with the word repent? <laughs> repent. We're looking for our king and he sends a prophet and he says repent. Huh. In other words, the king is indeed coming. His kingdom is at hand, John's saying, if I can put it in Tennessee lingo, you ain't ready. You're not ready. You're still going the wrong direction. And this morning, there are, some, there are some truths that we can see that will help us stay in the right direction if we are already in that right direction. Notice number one this morning, verse number two, and saying, John saying, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So very clearly we see a command to repent from John the Baptist. The king's coming. He is even among us, John the Baptist is getting to. You are not ready. But you can be. But you can be. And your first step is repentance. As I stated earlier, there is there's much for us to glean from the text. And there are at least three facts in this, in this command here that need, I think, need to be brought to light, uh, that are brought to light in the next verses. Number one, we know that a, a repent. To repent means to change direction. It's, it's, if you're going this way, spiritually, in your life, or theologically, in your thought process, whatever it may be, even, even physically, like if you're walking to some place that doesn't honor God, repentant is the, is the turning away from those things, a change of direction. 
Simply put, as a nation here in context, they, as the nation of Israel, were going the wrong direction. And they needed to change directions. As a nation, they needed to change directions. Wow, that sounds familiar. And, but as is true today, national repentance doesn't begin at the top. National be, uh, repentance begins with personal repentance. National repentance begins with personal repentance. So while John preached to the nation, notice that he didn't baptize a nation. He didn't baptize the whole Sanhedrin at once. He baptized one by one. He baptized individuals. Individuals. He did not baptize all of Judea at once, one by one. And today, you and I can complain about the direction of our nation, but repentance starts here. It starts in our hearts. It starts with individual Christians. It's not those who don't know the Lord. It's not their fault. They don't, they don't know the Lord. They have not that direction that we are supposed to have, that we are supposed to be submitted to. It starts with us. Repentance starts in the hearts of Christians, for, for a na- national repentance at least. So, listen, there are, there are so many of us today, and by us I mean true professing Christians and maybe even here today, around this community and certainly around the world, many of us have lost our zeal for the things of God. Me included from time to time. Church attendance, Bible reading and prayer resort to whether or not I feel like it. You know, we get wrapped up in the do's and don'ts. We allow offenses to keep our spirits bothered and the chaos of life becomes our God. Not God Himself, not the living God. All those things actually keep us from the living God. And some of us, if not every day, need a change in direction. And whether or not we need to make an about face, I thought about doing that, but I'm not sure I can do that anymore. Um, Whether or not we need to do an about face or just a course correction in our lives, we all need to repent. There are things that keep us straight with God. I think um, obedience is, of course, better than repentance. But let's all be real, we're, we're, just on, we're just a disobedient people. But the key to staying right with God is a repentant life. Amen. David did things more far wicked than we have ever done, but he knew the secret, and that secret is a repentant life. We must stay repented. We see here that they changed their direction. That's what Paul or, or, or John was speaking of. But notice also, verses 5 and 6, we see that they confessed their sin. Then went out to him, Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about them, and were baptized of him in Jordan, doing what? Confessing their sins. I wonder, I often wonder when I read this passage, or when I read anything about John the Baptist, uh, what he was doing there, I wonder how many of them, how many people, like numbers-wise, are indicated by the phrase, Jerusalem, all Judea, and the region round about Jordan. And all the region round about. That sounds like a lot of people. I mean, was it 500? Was it 5,000? We don't know. How many of Israel truly repented? How many actually changed directions and sincerely confessed their sins? And then how many of them were in the crowd just three years later saying, crucify him? How many? And when we are facing God, well, let me just say this. Repenting and confessing, I think, go hand in hand. Truly, genuine biblical repentance is more than just changing directions. Like we can go to that certain location, we can change directions. That is repentance defined literally or grammatically, I guess. But biblical repentance is turning from that to God. 
to God. We must turn to God. And when we are facing God, so to speak, the only honest action from us is to confess our sins. When Isaiah saw God, he said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. In fact, our salvation is dependent upon us turning to God and seeing ourselves in the light of His righteousness and then confessing our sins and receiving that righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, our salvation is linked to our repentance, of course, but our salvation is 100% provided by God. It's, it's provided through Christ on the cross. But all throughout the Scriptures, we are commanded to repent, to call, to receive, to obey, to love, and on and on and on. There is a prodding of action, if you will, all throughout the New Testament. Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. The salvation has been provided, but whosoever shall call can be saved. Romans 10.9, John 3.16, Acts 16.31. More and more and more. There's all kinds of ought to's throughout the New Testament. Yes, Jesus paid it all, but we ought to receive what He paid. But notice that John the Baptist here, as we continue on, is not preaching, oh, how relative this is, how, how relevant, rather. He's not preaching a skin-deep repentance to him and to God, by the way. True repentance and true confession was more, I love this, more than attendance. Because look at who the attendees were. In verse 7 and 8, he says, He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism. And he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who warned you? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. You know, for most people, it is natural when, when we read any narrative or any storyline, at least for me, we, we identify automatically with the good guys. We want to be the hero, or at least on the hero's side. And when we read about the Pharisees, rarely do I'm like, well, am I in the Pharisees group? We don't think that naturally. We don't want to think that. And because for the most part, they're not cast in a good light. And because of that, we tend to look at them as the other, as, the, as if they're different than us. But I think it's wise for us to take heed to what is said to them by John the Baptist, especially verse number 8. He says, bring forth therefore fruits, Meat for repentance. Bring forth fruits. Meat for repentance. In other words, prove it. Prove it. Prove it. He says in our, in our little alliteration here, communicate evidence of your repentance. Show me something in your life. This is John to the Pharisees now. Show me something in your life that proves to me that you are repenting. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but I'm not sure John would have baptized them without that proof. Some kind of word, some kind of a validation. Now, our baptism is a little bit different than that of John's baptism. And we'll get to that here in a moment. But I wonder what fruit we could bring forth that would demonstrate our true repentance. I'm going to read that phrase again. Our baptism is different than that of John's baptism. But I wonder what fruit we could bring forth that would demonstrate our true repentance. Today, Christianity in general, if you want to call it that, a general, a general definition of that, loosely defined, I guess you'd say, Christianity has allowed repentance to be a mere nod of the head or a, or a mental assent. But this type of shallow repentance would not have got past John the Baptist. 
And quite frankly, it doesn't get past Jesus Christ either. He knows. He knows. He knows. Jesus said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and have known of mine. And this plea for evidence from John here leads us to the next point of John's dialogue with a, cha- with a charge, if you will, to recognize the reality of their position before God. This is a charge to recognize for the Pharisees and for us, mind you, if you're not put that together yet. It's a charge for us to recognize our position before Almighty God. The first imperative in John's sermon here, I don't know if John intended this, but he he wrote a three-point sermon. Thank you, John. But the first imperative in his sermon was a command to repent. And now we see a charge to recognize. recognize. Look at at verse number 9. This is cuts right to the heart. Think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father, For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. I mean, what is John saying here? Don't think for a moment that you don't need repentance. Don't think for a moment. Of all the people gathered around that day, I mean, think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Were they not doubly accountable? They were were doubly accountable because of their proximity to the truth. They were doubly accountable because they led others astray. John didn't call them a generation of vipers just because it sounded cool. It wasn't the thing of the day. Or he wanted to be mean to them. He spoke to them the truth because they needed to hear the truth. On at least two occasions, Jesus also, following the example of John the Baptist, called them a generation of vipers. Wicked snakes filled with the venom of sin who attacked and preyed upon the people who comprised the Jewish nation who God came to redeem. That's what they were doing. They were vipers. John charged them to recognize their need for repentance and not rest upon the laurels of their position, their pedigree, their popularity, or anything else. And we can see some very good applications to us. We are not to rest upon our daddy's faith or our mom's faith or our church attendance or any kind of work on our part. We need to repent. We must take this charge to heart as well. A charge to recognize who we are before God. And as I was going through this in my study, I was led to do, I was looking for a search for a personal application, an example. I was going through my life and, and maybe the lives of my family looking for a great example of this. And then it just kind of hit me. This really is a charge of humility. It's a charge to be humble. You know, God did not need the Pharisees. He did not need the Sadducees. He didn't even need John the Baptist. He certainly doesn't need me. But whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Maybe if I, if I come to that conclusion and I say, well, God, you don't, God doesn't need me, but wait. What if I responded to God? Who will pastor this church then? Well, if God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham, certainly he can provide a man. I think he can raise up another pastor. And we can run that line of thought down many directions with some good conviction Who will lead this military unit, if not me? Who will teach my Sunday school class, if not me? Who will be there for my friends, if not me? Who will be the father to my children, if not me? Who will be the mother to my children, if not me? Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do our best in these areas, but done right, those roles that we fill are roles that God has called us to, yes? So that makes them His work, 
not our work. In other words, we are to be tools in the master's hands. I, many of y'all were over from my house and I built a, a new wall. And that sounds a whole lot more drastic than it really is. But I built a new wall in my house. And think for a moment. And I had to hammer um, across the wall. I don't know how far it is, but all the way up. It took me a couple of days. And so say I got halfway up. This is my project. I want to start here. I want to finish here. And say I got halfway up and my hammer broke. What do I go do? Well, there goes that. Can't finish my job. I, I'm going to be forever with a half wall at my house. No, I go get another hammer. I go get another hammer. So done right, the roles that we fill are God's roles. Or they're God's work. We are tools in His hands. The tools do not boast in themselves as if they need the master because the master can just go get another tool. Look at what John is saying here. Don't think that just because you are the children of Abraham, just because you are of the nations set apart by God to bless all nations, that you don't need to repent. God could raise up rocks to do that. God could raise up another nation. If the branches are not doing what they're meant to do, cannot God graft in a new branch? I mean, is that not what He did? Listen, none of us have a special place with God without Jesus Christ. There are no loopholes in righteousness. It does not matter if we are Jew or Gentile, raised in a Christian home or not, or even if we're a good person. We must all repent and confess of our sins, which if done genuinely will bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. But notice that John does not leave the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the dark about the urgency for their need to repent because he gives us this last um, large uh, outline here, a call for reckoning, a call for reckoning, judgment. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth a good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. You know, as I was reading this, the first passage that came to my mind outside of this was in the book of Daniel. Y'all remember when Nebuchadnezzar dreamed a dream. He dreamed a couple of dreams. And one of those dreams, he dreamed of a large tree that reached into the heart and all the nations around it fed from that tree. And then it was all a glorious dream. And then all of a sudden the tree was cut down to the ground. In short, or Daniel rather, in course, interprets the dream and he informs Nebuchadnezzar that he himself was the tree in the dream. And he further interpreted the dream in Daniel 4.26, and he says, Whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou shalt have known, after thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Now, I realize that this is a completely different prophecy for a completely different kingdom, but the similarities are uncanny. God still has a purpose for Israel. The axe is laid to the root, and it will be hewn down and cast away into the fire. The axe is a clear picture of judgment with many implications, but there is something left for the stump. And before we get to those implications, let's read a few more verses here that are certainly connected to this one. Look at verse 11 again. I indeed, John speaking, baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, there are many truths in this dense passage, so we can't touch on all of them, but I want to pull a few out. 
For example, notice that there are apparently three different types of baptism here. There is the baptism unto repentance. There is the baptism with the Holy Ghost. And then there's the baptism with fire. Three different types of baptism. The first of which, baptism unto repentance, is of course John's baptism. We do not participate in John's baptism. It points, however, to man's need for repentance. It actually points to the next baptism, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. With the one coming after John, who is mightier than John, whose shoes he's not worthy to bear, he baptizes with the Holy Ghost. Now, this is not talking about our water baptism that is a picture of a spiritual baptism. This is a reference to that spiritual baptism. This baptism involves repentance on the part of one who is being baptized, but it is a baptism unto salvation, as in to the body of Christ. It's a spiritual baptism. It is a repentance and returning to God, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and Him cleansing us, if you will, with the water of righteousness. That's a spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then there's this next baptism. A baptism also brought about by Jesus Christ. The baptism is said to be with fire, which as verse 12 explains is very clearly a baptism of judgment. These verses taken together refer to a reckoning of sorts and even speak of what kind of reckoning one can expect based on our relationship with Jesus Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Notice a few implications. Number one, we see some immediate implications there in the text, in the time in which John the Baptist was preaching. Look at verse 10. Now, now the axe is laid unto the root. Not tomorrow, now. Now is the axe laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So this is not a prophecy that had a long-term fulfillment. This is a promise. Now speaks of a present tense, immediate action. And it directly refers to the time at hand. John the Baptist preached, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because the axe is laid unto the root. The kingdom is at hand. The reckoning is at hand. Repenting should also be at hand. Repent and bring forth fruit meat for repentance. But we see also some national implications, which leads right into those after that immediate. So the period of time for the Jews, I mean, we know the nation of Israel. These are God's chosen people, right? These are from Abraham, uh, from Genesis chapter 12. He called Abraham out of the land of uh, Chaldees, the Ur of the Chaldees, and he did wonders through them, brought them through Egypt, all those things. These are, these are God's people. This was a time that God would bless the world through his chosen people, the Abraham, the, the, the followers of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, the Jews. They were his people. But that period of time was coming to a climax. Time was expiring. The axe was laid to the root. Time was expiring for the nation of Israel in this, in this dispensation. And repentance was required. The reckoning had arrived. Again, the axe had come for the tree that didn't bring forth any fruit. Their king had arrived. Their king was there. It's like that parable and later in Matthew, which we'll get to in a few months or years. The parable says, A certain householder which planted a vineyard, he let it out to husbandmen, and then he went into a far country. And while he was gone, the husbandmen, they came in, and they didn't do what was right. They started killing the servants. And then the householder sent his son. What did they do to him? They killed him too. But then the householder came back. Then there was judgment. Then there was reckoning. 
by their own words there in that, in that parable that a Pharisee says, he will come back and destroy those miserable servants. So when the householder returns, when the king is on the scene, there's a time of reckoning. And that was hap- that's what was happening for the Jews. And their decision was simple. I mean, get this. Repent, receive their king, and face that reckoning with their king. Or, don't repent, reject your king, and face the reckoning without him. And we can also see the immediate implications of their decision, of their ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ as their king. They said, there his blood be upon us. And then God destroyed the temple in AD 70, and there's some other things in there as well. But the end of Jewish religion, even the proper way to worship as a Jew, was forever gone. They cannot even worship today according to Scripture because they can't get there. It's done. God put a pause on it. You didn't accept me? Stop. I have another branch, another nation that will. So then we see some immediate implications, some national, then some future implications. Again, baptism by fire is easily a reference to judgment. John states in verse 12 that he, being Jesus, of course, will thoroughly purge, delete over and over again, cleanse his floor and gather his wheat into the garner or the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, this is an eschatological passage. This speaks of the end times. This purging of his floor is likely a reference to the Great Tribulation. Of note, of each of the baptisms of John preaches about some sort or relate to some sort of separation. Baptism of repentance for the Jews there separated them from the life that they lived with an internal commitment to live a repented life. So it separated them from the old you to the new. The baptism of the Holy Ghost separates you from this world and into the family of God. The baptism of fire has to do with purging, which separates the wheat from the chaff. In other words, not only was there an immediate reckoning for Israel, there is also a coming judgment that will purge the earth, separating the just from the unjust. It's coming. It's in the Word. This is just a prophecy from John the Baptist that rested in the New Testament. is filled with things like this. But then lastly... This morning, notice, I think, I, there we go, future implications. Notice that there is not only an immediate national and future implication, but for us, there is also a personal implication. There is a personal implication. We can't just look at the Pharisees and look at the Jews and, and not have this scripture speak to us. That's why we have it. In other words, the baptism with water unto repentance by John is in the past. It doesn't happen anymore. In fact, when, when the apostles ran into some who were only baptized with John, what did they do? They, they saw if they were truly in Christ and they rebaptized them, or really baptized them the first time in Christ. So the spiritual baptism spoken of here, the baptism with the Holy Ghost, began after the resurrection, and it is currently the baptism we experience when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Then there's the baptism with fire. And it, in its truest sense is still yet future. So what are these personal implications? There is still yet a reckoning that every one of us will face. There will be a purging of the threshing floor. At that reckoning, Christ will separate the saved from the unsaved. 
He will gather the wheat into his garner or into his barn, or those he will gather them unto himself, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And what John preached to the Pharisees and the Sadducees is ironically and very clearly the same message for the world today. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To the world today, we can say, don't think within yourselves that you don't need to repent or that God expects you or accepts you because of what you have to offer. Whatever special talent or quality that we think we have, God is able to raise to, to, of stones to raise up something greater than we are. We must repent, and we must do so authentically in a way that communicates evidence of our repentance. So the conclusion for our sermon is also simple. Jesus is the King of kings, and judgment is coming. We can either repent, receive Him as King, and like wheat be welcomed into His barn, or we can rebel, reject Him as rightful King, endure the reckoning without Him, and be cast away like chaff into ever into unquenchable fire. It's really that simple. And please know that God is not willing that any should perish. God is not willing that not one, He is not willing that one soul go to hell. The hell was not created for us. So if we go to hell, if any man goes to hell today, they go against the will of God. Choose Christ. He is not willing that any should perish, and this is why He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay our sin debt on the cross of Calvary. We must only repent and receive Him as Savior, as our Lord and King. And as we close, if you have already received Jesus Christ as your Savior, can you bring forth fruit and meat for repentance? If so, and if I can personalize the words of John the Baptist, show me. Show me. Show the community. Show the world. And most importantly, show God. Show God. And let's, let's close in a word of prayer.